as we start, there's probably a, a good question to ask is uh, simply the idea of, well, should we have questions? Is, I mean, is it okay? Because, I mean, it doesn't it feel like a little bit like, well, if I have a question, am I doubting God? Am I, am I, am I not being strong in my faith? Am I, am I a weak Christian? And so one of the things we want to do right off the bat is, is we begin uh, the series and tonight's uh, discussion is simply legitimize the idea of a question, if you have a question. And, and so uh, what I, th- I think that we, we want to do is, as we look at this, we should go back and look at Scripture. As much as possible, it's not going to be Dan's opinion. And so, so I've spent the week thinking about what you might be thinking about. We're going to see if there's any synchronization there at all. I don't know. But I've, I've, I have lots of Scripture to share with you. Uh, because our answers can't come out of my mind. If they do, you're in trouble. Okay? They've got to come from God's Word. If you look at Scripture, I love this passage from Matthew 28, 17, because what happens there is this is the disciples with Jesus right before he ascends into heaven, right before he gives them the Great Commission. And they came and they worshiped. But what happens to some of them? They doubted. They doubted. It's like, well, it's okay then to have doubts because they were with Jesus for three whole years. They saw Jesus do miracles. They saw Jesus rise from the dead, and they still doubted. Can anybody relate to those disciples? I can, because doubt is natural. And I think what's important for us to understand, and this is really a critical idea for me as I got into this, is that questions and doubts, you know, if if you're asking important questions, it's really an important part of following Jesus because they can strengthen or weaken your faith. Now, how does that happen? Well, you know, you've heard the old saying, there's no such thing as a bad, dumb question, you know, or whatever you want to fill in the blank with. Questions are so good. The only bad question is the one that's not asked. And the reason why that's bad is that an unanswered question in your faith can cause you problem. It can challenge you at the times where you might not be the strongest. And so we want to make sure that we get these questions out. Now, this is just the beginning of seven more weeks of talking about our questions. So begin to think this way. Say, what, what kind of questions do I have that I maybe have been afraid of or not answering? Because see, what happens is if we answer those questions, if we dig in and we look at God's Word, it actually strengthens our faith, right? So questions can be, can they can strengthen or they can weaken. It depends on what we do with them. Timothy Keller wrote about it this way. He said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who go blithely through life, too busy to, or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of a tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if they failed over the years to listen to their own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. In other words, we all go on this journey, and if we don't do it, it leaves us vulnerable. And, uh, you know, you see this, uh, in, in fact, in the Garden of Eden, right? That's, this is exactly the way Satan attacks, by helping Eve develop a question. You know, you see it. This is the way he attacks, and this is the way he attacks us today. So it's very, very important that we we do this, that we go through this kind of thinking on questions. So with that, why uh, why don't we go to our first question, Tony? Okay, could the Holy Spirit be female? Well, of course... With God, all things are possible, right? However, here's, here's what I would tell you, that uh, there are some early fathers who have, have formulated that possibility, that idea. However, the Greek, the Greek word pneuma is gender neutral. So um, probably not, I would say, on the basis of that. If you go study the Greek, uh, the words have um, assignments. You know, they can be masculine or feminine, but this one is neutral, pneuma. So probably not would be the answer to that question. All right, how about our next question? Okay, what does it mean when the Bible refers to someone as righteous or just 
Joseph if Jesus is the only one who lived a sinless life. So the question is about, it's about righteousness. How do we, how do we obtain righteousness? So uh, why don't we go to um, slide number 60, Tony. Let's look and see what Scripture says about righteousness. So when we talk about our righteousness, when any righteousness in Scripture, there is this general idea of civil righteousness. In fact, Scripture seems to indicate, you know, they say you're a, they're a good people from the perspective of they, they live a righteous, in a righteous way. But what's the problem? They all, all of us, have fallen short. And so this verse from Romans reminds us, remember we went through this, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So in other words, there's no one who's righteous, all right? So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men and women. So, so the idea is that, of course, there really are no righteous people. There are no good people. And this is fundamental to the Christian worldview that we understand the severity of the problem of sin and that there's only one answer. For as by one man's disobedience there were many made sinners... So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, be made justified or be justified, made just as if there is no sin. So the reality for us is that when we look at ourselves, we have to start with this perspective of we are sinful human beings, all of us. And, and yeah, there are some of us who are better behaved, all right, at least in public, better behave, but not always in private, or we have this problem of the heart. So with that, uh, let's take the next question. Why should I join a small group? I'm kind of shy. Will it help me? Well, yeah, actually, um, why don't you look at uh, slide 61, Tony, and uh, there, there's many different places in Scripture that talk about the centrality of community and the role of community. And what God wants to do in us is continue not just to justify us, but what? To sanctify us. How does he do that? Well, if you're not in relationship, you're not going to experience that sanctification process in the same way. Because here's what it is. Here's what happens. When you're in relationship with somebody, it's kind of like uh, there's friction occasionally. You know, you can't be in a relationship. There's, a, there's like a rubbing together of lives. And it, what it does is it takes, it takes us to a different kind of place to be able to respond to that and say, okay, God, I, I don't have, I don't, in that moment, I'm not very loving. And, and that can happen in a small group. It can also happen that you end up serving beyond what you thought might, you might do in a small group. It also happens that you get challenged by other people to look at Scripture. So the relationships you have in a small group are like, it's like practice, for the world. It's where God uses other people's gifts and talents and even sin to shape you. And you can't do that if you don't have relationships. And so it's like um, if you've ever, if you've been, if you're part of a family like uh, with kids right now, you know how that works. You know, you have this job of raising children and teaching them how to, to function in a family, but it takes being with them and teaching them and being together in community. So central to the, God's idea of, of community is how it shapes us. Uh, it's practice for love. And small groups are so important because you can come into a, a, a setting like this day in or week in and week out. And if you're never letting yourself be known, if you're never telling people what's on your heart, if you're never expressing your doubts, asking your questions, if you're never serving or or caring about somebody, you're not getting the practice you need. And see, what, what God wants to do is he wants to bring that good work that he's starting in you to completion. Of course, he'll, that'll only be completed when we go to heaven. However, well, part of that process of getting ready for heaven is to be in community, Christian community with other believers. And the scripture's just filled with examples of how the early church started and it was formed around groups that met in houses when Saul, or Paul, was not uh, yet converted, he would attack the church. You know where he went to find it? He went house to house. And that's why, because Christians knew they needed each other, they supported each other, they encouraged each other, they helped 
that with the process of what we call sanctification in community, and that's, that's why that's so important. And so being in a group will help you overcome even that shyness. So next question. Could God have created a world with free will and no evil? Well, that's really, really a good question. So in our creation account in Genesis chapter 2, and I believe I've got a slide for that, Genesis chapter 2 in creation, when God creates us in his image, he creates us for relationship. And so we have this relationship Desire, our creator desires this relationship with us. And he, he wants it to be real. He wants it to be real. He wants, us, he wants us to choose to love him. So we have to have, if we're going to be more than robots, which is, he wants more than that, more than automatic response, we have to have the ability to choose not to love. And so in the choosing of not to love. I mean, when Adam and Eve, uh, basically, when Adam and Eve um, were tempted in the garden, they had a choice. They had a choice not to do what they were, what they were tempted to do, just like we have a choice. Here's the challenge for us. There, there can be no love, and that's what he wants. There can be no love without choice. Does that make sense? So I don't know how we could avoid the problem of evil because if we're not following God's plan, his purpose, his law, if you would, if we're not doing that, then how in the world could we respond? I mean, would we, what would we be doing? If we're doing good things, we're going to be wanting to be in a relationship with God. If we're not wanting to be in a relationship with God, who are we in a relationship with? You see, the very definition of sin is love turned in on self. It's self-love. It's self-love to the point where we don't follow God. So I don't know how we could have free will and not have evil because um, Scripture tells us, Genesis chapter 6, I believe, tells us that every inclination of the human heart is evil all the time. Every inclination of the human heart is evil all the time. So we have a sin problem. So I don't know how we could have you know, free will and avoid the acting out on that sin. So next question. What is sin? Okay, so that's a really good one. And it's one that's, deba that's debated in our world today, isn't it? I mean, what is sinful, right? So let's look at scripture. We'll start with uh, John 19 and... Uh, Let's see, wait a minute, that's not it. Okay, I'm sorry, 1 John 3, uh, yeah, okay, 1 John 3, 4. Um, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, all right? So if you're sin, sinning, so the definition of sin, it's lawlessness. Now, the challenge is, of course, well, Whose law are we talking about? And, and, and the answer is, it depends on what perspective you have on the world, what worldview you have in, our, uh, in, in, in this time, because people don't all agree that God's law is the law. You know, when you look at this, here's, here's some categories for us to think about. Uh, the first one is, if we can get it to go here. Oops. Well, I wanted to tell you about this different kinds of, of law. And uh, for some reason, we're having trouble getting there. It is. Theonomous. Our world used to be focused on God's law. In other words, we, we used to have this like understanding that God's law is written on our hearts. And, and, and even our country, I want you to think about this. It was why is the Ten Commandments in, why are the Ten Commandments in, in the courtrooms? Why? Because, guess why? Because we believed in the law of God. Now, as our culture has changed, we now are looking at uh, uh, heteronomous. That's, 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 that's the law of human beings that are imposed on us. 
And, and the idea that that has now become, well, really the governing, uh, the, the rule of land, the land, if you would. And, and you may have noticed that it doesn't always line up with what God's law is. And, but it's yet, it's the law. So when are we sinning? Are we sinning if we're, if we're following the laws of the land? Maybe. But see, the real issue is we want to be autonomous. In other words, we want to have self-law. You see, and, and, and that's where you see our country going. In other words, I get to make up my rules. And so when we talk about sin, it's always important. We have to go back to God's law. We can never separate it out from God's law. And, and yet we do as people because we have a sin problem. We have this, this desire to serve ourselves, to, to love ourselves. And so sin is a, it's lawlessness, and it's specifically the lawlessness, it's the, it's the breaking of the laws, missing of the marks, as shown to us in Scripture. Now, that relationship with the law is a complex one, isn't it? Because we know that in Christ we are free from the law. Well, we are free from the penalties of the law, but God gave us that law as protective devices so that we would, if we follow it, we will have the best experience of life possible. I mean, if you talk about a pragmatic approach for Christianity, if you want a better life, follow God's laws, which means you have to know them. And, and it makes a difference in the way life is experienced. So sin is a, is a big issue today because we want to define it on our own. Let's go to the next question. How do you reconcile a seven-day creation with the supposed age of the earth? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. Tony, you want to take that one? <laughs> Um, why don't we go to uh, uh, slide number 41? And yeah, so there's, so there's, there's many times where the Bible says stuff where you're going to go, hmm, how does that work with science? Here's, one, here's another one of them, not just seven days of creation. Like, oh, the, the earth is fixed. It shall never move. You know that early folks believe that. They believe that the, the world was, our earth was the center of the universe that everything revolved around it. And, and so you look at that and you think, well, the, the Bible must be absolutely wrong, right? I mean, it's just not, not correct. It, it couldn't be correct. Well, here's the challenge on the seven-day creation thing. People argue about it, and different Christians have different views on it. Some people believe that in a young earth, and maybe you've been to the Creation Museum. It's down in Kentucky. And they're famous for really helping people see why they think the earth is young. And that there was a seven days of creation. And then there are, there are uh, scientists who are Christian who believe in evolution and billions of, or millions of years for the creation of earth. And, and there are, then there's people who struggle with, well, is a day a day? Or is a day like a thousand years? Or what, what is the answer? And the, and the answer is we don't know. The scripture doesn't really tell us with, with absolute certainty and clarity. And, and the other part of that, and very important part of it, is do we have to know? And in other words, there's ways for us to look at scripture. Scripture is not a science textbook, although it does oftentimes give us some very interesting clues as to what's happening. In fact, scientists continue to discover things that, uh, well, they kind of support more of a, a, of a uh, biblical view of creation. For instance, the Big Bang. You can't have a Big Bang, bang unless you've got somebody who creates that. You know, uh, the origins of life. As they've studied cellular structures and found out there's all this incredible uh, complexity in a one-cell organism. That, how does that work with evolution? It doesn't. And mathematicians will tell you that. If you go and study what they say about evolution, they say there's no way that that cell could have come out of the slime of primordial um, earth, you know. It, it just couldn't have happened because all those parts of that cell had to be there all at once. So the, the, the question of the age of the earth is right now a little bit of a mystery. And uh, anticipating this question... I want to encourage you to, uh, where's, it's all right. There's a book called The Seven Days That Divide 
the earth. And there it is, the divide the world. And it's by John Lennox. And John Lennox is a, is a scientist who's a Christian who struggled with this very issue. And he helps us look and understand that you don't have to make a commitment on the age of the earth um, to be a Christian. Because we honestly, we have some questions we don't know for sure. So uh, that may not be a fully satisfying answer, but that's the one we have. So next question. How can we say that God has never failed us when we have big, unanswered prayers? Yeah, that's really... Um, let's, let's, go to, um, let's go to slide seven. I'm sorry, slide nine. So we have big questions. We have challenges in our world, and it starts with the problem of sin that we all have. And so when, when, you, when you pray and you ask and you say, Lord, please, can, it, can, you, can you fix the problems? We, we need to go back and think about the world. The world was created perfectly, and then there was the fall. And the fall led us to this place where we are, where there is sin, and there is death, and there is disease, and it's all because we've all sinned. Now, be careful there. Don't make a one-to-one connection to an unanswered prayer. That's not what we're talking about. We live in brokenness. And Scripture, uh, the, the New Testament especially, talks about it. We do not live in a time where we will experience perfection. We won't be glorified. In fact, we've, we're redeemed. We're redeemed from the problem of sin. In other words, we'll live forever. But it doesn't mean that God is going to be able to do everything or will do everything we think is best. In fact, quite the opposite of the New Testament is filled with verses about suffering, about pain, about unanswered prayers. Let's look at this verse from 2 Corinthians. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is Paul writing. He, he's, he is not experiencing an answer to all his prayers, I'm sure. And he says, for the, the light and momentary afflictions, for this light and momentary affliction, and, and what he's talking about, he's in singular form, he's saying life. For this challenge of life, with its, all its mystery and unanswered uh, nature, it's preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, but we haven't reached that yet. And so we can't expect perfection in this world because we live in a fallen state. And we look to the things that are, uh, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. In other words, he's saying, I look to the future, I look to heaven, I look to the, the idea, the, the wonder of a, a perfect world. And, and that, that's what gives me strength. That's what comforts me. That's what holds me, holds me in the middle of big unanswered questions, prayers in my life. And, and then we have to trust. Does God know what he's doing? I mean, the Bible says he does. And, and it, yet it can feel like the whole world is coming apart, but do we trust him? Paul writes this very famous verse. I'm sure you've seen it. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And do we trust him with that? See, that's why these questions are so important, that we'd ask them and then wrestle with them and, and see what Scripture says. God says, look, I'm there for you. And you may go through suffering, but you'll never go through it alone. I'm there with you. The church is there with you. And, you, and, and of course, immediately, I want to I know, well, God, take care of evil in this world. Take care of suffering in this world. Make it all go away. And he will. But remember, if he would come and remove all evil from this world, that would be all of us. It would be over. Right? That'd be the end. In fact, that's exactly what he's going to do. But remember, we talked, we started with the idea of righteousness. And, and, and we have the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness, what God gave us through Christ. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough good stuff. But in the meantime, while we're living in this fallen world, God's going to take all this and weave it together for good. 
oftentimes is uh, um, a illustration to help us think about this is tapestry. Can you look at the backside of a beautiful uh, rug or any kind of uh, any weaving that's done? If you look at the backside, it looks like a mess. And right now, that's all we can see. We don't know what God is doing with all of it and how it all turn out. But we have to learn to trust him. It's hard in the human experience when there's pain and suffering. But he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He said, I will be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. Fear no evil. He's here with us. And so that's the answer to the question is, It'd be great if he could, but if he did, the world ends. And uh, because we all are evil, we all have that problem. So maybe time for one more, Tony? If a baby is not baptized, will it still go to heaven? And that's just a really wonderful question because, you know, we all want babies, especially our grandchildren, right, to go to heaven. I mean, once you get a grandchild, you're even like going, okay, I'm going to do everything I can. I want, to, I want to love this child. I want them to know Christ because you want them to have this gift. And uh, the answer is, we do not believe as Lutherans that baptism is required for salvation. And uh, so that's we adults or babies. And that God is a perfect judge, and it would go for also for all people who maybe hadn't heard the gospel explicitly. You know, everybody knows there's God. You know, people will claim to be an atheist, but Scripture says otherwise. Scripture says that everybody knows from nature there is a God. The question is, will they acknowledge him? But we also know that that God will judge all people fairly. So we don't worry about babies who have not been baptized or who have been aborted or whatever um, difficulty uh, they can still go to, the he- go to heaven according to our theology and understanding. Now, why do we do baptism? Well, because we want them to receive that covenant promise. We want them to know. They, we want them to know as they grow up that God extended the gift of life to them, spiritual life to them through the waters of baptism. Next question. How can I be sure that the Bible, God, isn't just an elaborate con? How do I know? Wow, really appreciate that question, especially since you're thinking about you're, you're pretty much betting your life and eternity on the idea of religion and, and God. And the first, the first evidence for me comes in the very first words of the Bible. What does the Bible start with? What are the words? In the beginning, God did what? He created. And see, when you look at that, he created the heavens and the earth. He created us. And, and God doesn't even justify, he doesn't spend any time in the Bible explaining where he came from. You know that? He just says, I am. And you hear that phrase later on. And so God created. And so first of all, we know that from that creation, we know that there was a creator. In fact, science is even beginning to support that idea. You know that because if there's a big bang, something had to cause it. Right? And that was not always the scientific worldview. They didn't always, they used to think that the universe had always been. And yet now science has discovered that it began. It had to have, if it began out of nothingness, there had to be someone, some entity that created it. So that's number one. That's, that's why I believe in God. Now, why do I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? as a display of God, as, as, as God coming to show us who the Father is. Well, I believe because we have this book called the Bible, right, which is an amazingly powerful collection of 66 books written over 4,400 years that hold together internally consistent with prophetical and archaeological support in the Old Testament for what's going to happen in the New Testament. But the biggest miracle of all is that Jesus Christ demonstrated He was God by overcoming the problem of sin that we just talked about. He he lived a perfect life, was crucified, died. He was buried, and he rose again to show us that life, as God originally intended, intended exists. So that's how I I would know that it's not an elaborate con. And people who have, over the years, atheists and skeptics who have said, look, this is not true. This is not true. Um, it's, they've investigated it, and they've become Christians. Many 
have done that. And uh, the, the challenge for us is skeptics have doubts. And what happens when they begin to deal with their doubts honestly and openly? A lot of times it moves them towards Christ, not away from the explanations of the Bible. So great question. Thanks for asking it. What's our next question? Will I go to heaven right after death or will I wait until Jesus' return? Um, appreciate that question. You know, all of us have some concerns about death, right? I mean, what happens when I die? And what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross, uh, the one that repented and the one that acknowledged and worshiped him? He said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, that's an amazing promise, isn't it? So there's this recognition in Scripture that we will be with God in heaven. And there's all kinds of heaven questions, right? You know, like uh, I always thought, you know, I have all these questions. And I always thought when I get to heaven, there's going to be a booth for every one of them, you know, people lined up. And the one that I want to ask first is, you know, why did you make mosquitoes? Really, seriously, I just don't see any purpose in that particular creature or that annoyance in life. Just kidding. But the reality is we get to go to heaven. We get to be with Christ. And, and sometimes, and you may have heard this teaching at times, you, you may have heard that uh, there's this, what they call soul sleep, that we actually go to sleep and we won't really know anything or we won't be interacting or, or have awareness. Um, scripture doesn't really support that. So if you've heard that from other teachers um, there's some uh, detailed explanations we could go into. Um, I can provide that for you if you provide me your contact information, whoever answered that or asked that question. But the key is when Jesus returns, when he returns, then we get what's called a glorified body. Now, what do we know about glorified bodies? Well, we only know one person with a glorified body. You know who that is, right? That's Jesus. He now exists in a glorified state. And what do we know? Well, we know that he walked, he talked, he was recognized, he rose, um, he ascended into heaven, he ate. And so there's some clues about glorified bodies and what they're like. But when Jesus returns, that's what we get. And uh, I'm just waiting for mine because I know it's going to be really perfect, right? I'm going to be buff and built. That's a question a lot of people ask. I have no idea what the answer is. But I know we're going to be very happy in our glorified bodies and, uh, and, and living eternally with Christ. So next question. Can a true born-again believer lose their salvation? And the answer is, according to our understanding of Scripture, is yes. There is debate, I will tell you that, among our um, different denominations and theological systems. There's debate on that. Um, the, the, the challenge for understanding it is Hebrews chapter 6. I don't have a slide for that. I've got several made, but that one I didn't put uh, in, in the slide set. But basically it says that if you believe and then fall away, it's, it, it's impossible to come back. And uh, that's a little scary, isn't it? Like, so if you believe and fall away, it's impossible to come back because it's like you're crucifying Christ all over again. And uh, so the key is when you say fall away, what does that really mean? But the verse indicates it's possible to fall away, to lose your salvation. And it's to reject Christ. And the debate is always, well, that person was not a true born-again believer to begin with. And, and you see, that's the problem is we don't know ever, do we? We never really know where our heart is. We can have all the outward signs and we wouldn't know. Uh, and so the key is... Not really can a true born-again believer lose your salvation. The key to that question is, do you believe? You know, if, if there's any insecurity in that, you need to know that it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, right? It's the work of God saving you. He gave you that gift. And, and Jesus said, how much faith do you need? The size of a what? A mustard seed. So if you're, if you're confessing Christ, if you believe Christ, even if you have lots of questions, then you're, you are saved. If you're asking the question, more than likely you are saved because you're concerned about being saved, even if you struggle with different teachings in Scripture. And so there is no um, indication uh, outside of that Hebrews 6 passage that would really help us understand that any better. But the key for the question is really this. 
is for us, do we know that we're saved? And it's easy to know simply because of the way we approach Christ and understand his offer of salvation. And what that means for us is saying, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of a savior. A lot of people don't believe that. They don't believe that Jesus is needed in their life, but that's the key to the question. Next question. How to approach any antagonistic person without creating more anger, particularly when it's a family member? Yeah, that, that question is never asked out of just general curiosity, is it? It's always asked because we all have one. We have a person, at least one person in the family like that. So I really appreciate that question. And, and uh, so the, the answer is in love. And uh, I want to take you to a few slides about love. And uh, I, think, I think it's very important that, let me just uh, find my reference here real quickly, that we understand um, the nature of love. Let's go to slide number 55. It, it, without, so that we don't create anger, we have to, we have to, we have to approach everything. We're, we're called to love, right? And, and that's, you know, this is what Jesus said. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, you know, and then, oh, love your neighbor and your relatives, okay? And, and, and so, but what does that mean? What is love? What is Christian love really all about? Well, it, it begins with the source. We have to understand the source of that love. We have to have um, Christ at work in our heart. Uh, we're never going to be perfect at that love, but we have a perfect example of that love in Christ. And so as he works in our hearts, we can express that love more clearly to others. And he's even given us a kind of a picture of what we're aiming for. Uh, maybe you've heard this verse at a wedding, right? Uh, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, boast, arrogant, rude, it's not... Uh, irritable or resentful or rejoice in wrongdoings. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, or ne love never ends. And the greatest of these, you know, you've been there. You've, you've heard this about marital love. Here's what I tell couples when I marry them. I say, you're not going to be able to do that. Is, is, anybody give me an amen? Okay, if you're married, you gave me an amen. I guarantee it. Because this is God's kind of love. This is the model for love. This is Christ. This is the picture of Christ. And, and so this is the kind of love we should have to a relative and they, that they would see Christ in us. Now, the, the, the other thing that I would say is that as you love a person, you'll get an opportunity for conversation. But if you come in and begin to pound on them and do what we call contact evangelism, you know, where you pound them with the Bible. You, I'm just kidding there. But the idea of beating them over the head, right? You don't do that because they need to see love in you, and you can see the standard for love here. And so there's a challenge, and, and so... Uh, I always say begin in prayer because that's the first idea of approaching anybody in the faith. Then I say, well, how, how have I failed to love? Second question for me. How have I failed to love? And then finally, I say, okay, so ultimately I have to understand that truth is a part of love. You see, love rejoices in the truth. And what is that truth that they need to hear? Well, of course, it's the gospel. Uh, but how and when and exactly what I say to that is not something I can actually um, tell you to do. You have to be prompted and guided by the Holy Spirit. That's why you begin in prayer. We have a little acronym that we use to, about uh, the idea of sharing your faith. It's called BLESS. So begin in prayer, right? That's the first one. Begin in prayer. Listen. So learn to listen because you're going to want to listen to where hurts, pains, questions, I, uh, challenges are. Uh, engage. In other words, do life with them. Serve them. And then finally, share your story. Share your story. Because what really is most effective witness is, you know, what Christ has done for me. But they need to see that in you uh, probably before they hear that from you. So that's, uh, that's about, I think, probably the best way to approach uh, a, a relative or even anyone really who is uh, potentially antagonistic to the faith. Next question. I struggle with death. And remembering this world only is temporary. How can we understand God's plan better as to why he calls 
some sooner than others. Now, this is really the, the challenge of life is that it contains this thing called death. And, and why some people, you know, die young. Uh, why some people who are living uh, amazingly what we would see outwardly as, as good people, you know, um, and they still die. And uh, so let's, uh, let's move over to, um, let's move over to, Slide nine. It begins with the problem of sin. And we all have it. And we need to recognize that. So some people die sooner than others, but you have to remember that all of us die because the wages of sin is death. And we move to that, to the whole idea of how, what that creates in our lives and it creates in, in our lives suffering, which God actually uses us to continually point us back to the reality of our own lives. Why um, Solomon wrote, it's better to be, or the Proverbs, I think it is, it's better to be at a funeral than a wedding. And uh, it, it is challenging, but we have to recognize that, that it's our fate as human beings. We can't, we can't deny our enemy. And, and uh, when you say God allows it, remember that we live in a fallen world. It is everybody's, absolutely everybody's future uh, from the youngest to the oldest. And, and we see no justice in that. We don't understand the nature of suffering. Uh, we don't know what God is doing when a person is taken too soon or uh, you know, it, in, in an unexpected, uh, horrible way, an accident or a disease. But the reality is we live in this fallen world, and because we live in this fallen world, death is a reality. That's, that's not God's choice. God chose what? He chose to make us perfect, and we messed it up, and we sinned the fall, and we live in that fallen nature. And uh, so then God takes that suffering, and he actually can use it for good. Maybe you've heard the verse, Romans 8, 28. God is able to make all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we know that even in our pain and suffering when we lose somebody, that God is using that some way in, in our life for good. And you, you think, how does that even work? And I can't answer the question. I, I describe it as, a, as, a, as a, you know, a tapestry. If you've ever seen like a complex tapestry, a rug making kind of thing, and you look at it on the front side, it's side and it's a beautiful design, and on the back side, it's just a mess of thread. And, and our lives is, are lived kind of from the back side of that because we cannot see what God is doing overall. We can't see what he is doing uh, for us um, in terms of guiding our lives towards an eternal future that we can't even imagine. But we do have the promises of God, and the question is, do we trust him? Do you trust God? Do you trust his word? And occasionally we run up against things like this question and we say, well, I don't know, it's so hard to trust you, but remember the realities of how he has, he has revealed himself through us through creation, the natural revelation, the specific revelation of scripture, and all the promises for the future. And he's also said to us, every one of us, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And even in the middle of your suffering, I will go with you. Though, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, for I am with you. So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't take us from suffering because of this sin that's in the world, but he promises to walk with us through that suffering. And that's the answer that we have from Scripture on uh, death. What's our next question? Why does it appear that God heals some and not others? Wow, that's a big question. I really appreciate, you know, when we pray, and I bet everybody's had the experience to pray for healing and, not, and the person has not been healed. Uh, and so when we, when we see that question, there's a, there, there are stories behind it. You're probably having in your own mind, you, you, you remember moments where this has happened. Now the challenge is, and uh, let's maybe move to... Um, Slide number, uh, let's see here, slide number 27. So the, the idea that we're told to pray for healing, 
is important. God says, pray for healing. The book of James says it this way, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And then it says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So from that verse, you might think, well, one of the reasons why people don't get prayed is the person that's praying may not, might not be righteous. That You might take that out of that verse. But what does it really mean to be a righteous person? Can you be a righteous person? Can you be declared good? The answer is no, because we all break the law, right? So Scripture has said that we're all sinners. No, not one has kept the law perfectly. So... Here he's saying, the writer is simply saying that those in Christ pray and it's possible that healing could happen. But healing does not always happen. And it leaves us with the question. John, in 3 John, tells us, he says, Beloved, I pray that it may go well with you and all that you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So even praying for health and healing is mentioned many, many times. Jesus' ministry was all about healing many times. And here's the challenge for us. Where do we live now in terms of God's overall plan? God created a perfect world, right? A perfect world, creation, perfect. No death, no disease, no sickness, no illness, no death. What happened? Sin entered into that world. So we live now in a fallen state. God is redeeming this world, right? He's redeeming it. He's redeeming each of us individually. He's rescuing his creation. And ultimately, he will restore us in perfect, glorified form in heaven. We'll live with him forever. But for now, we live in this incredibly difficult time of a fallen world. If you guys could put up uh, Romans 8, 28 for me, let's take a look at that verse. So Romans 8, 28 says that God is able to work uh, all things for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He's able to work things for good. So even in our difficulties, our pain and suffering, and our unanswered prayers for healing, which if you can probably surmise by now, I don't know why God doesn't heal sometimes and why he does other times. I know he tells us to pray for it. But this is just like any bad thing that happens to good people. That's what we usually say. That's our question. Why does evil exist in the world? Why do, why do these horrible things happen? And we know that, that God is at work. He, he is at work redeeming his world so that one day, what happens? We get to experience the perfect world that he designed in the beginning. But until then, he's at work in ways that we don't understand. Even in the pain and suffering that we have. Even in the difficulties and challenges that we have. He's at work. Sometimes this verse uh, reminds me that, that you know, life is kind of like a tapestry. Maybe you've heard this illustration. You know, like a beautiful tapestry that's, if you look at it from one side, it's a beautiful picture, but if you go on the back side of it, it's just a bunch of threads. It's very confusing and very, not much of a design. It doesn't seem like it fits together for anything good, but God is at work. And so here's the challenge for us, folks, right here. This is the challenge. When we have these moments, we have to say, do we trust God? Now, I will also say we also have to be aware of our enemy, right? Because we need to make sure that we're saying to God, okay, I'm going to resist Satan in my life too because uh, sometimes Satan is the one who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. You've heard me talk about it. I, have, I had an alcoholic brother. He's dead now because of his alcoholism who confessed Christ but yet kept on drinking in his addiction and would not do anything about it. See, Satan wanted to steal his life and use sin and his addiction to do it. And so, so we have to be careful because sin is dangerous, but we also have to be aware that sometimes we just won't know why those prayers are not answered in the way we want, to, want, it to, want them to be. And I know that that's, that's a question that comes out of 
personal experience. And so for everybody who might be in that situation, I want to encourage you to keep praying and, and speaking against what Satan might want to do. I want you to keep asking God for healing because Scripture tells us to. But at the same time, we have to learn to trust God because he can do good even out of things that look like they're bad. And I'll give you the evidence of Christ himself and his death on the cross and the good that has come from that, from that for us. Okay, how about our next question? Before Jesus was born and people died, where did they go? Great question. And often um, when you read the Old Testament, right, you, you hear about people dying and you wonder what happened to them. And there's a lot of speculation on this and there's some words uh, that need to be understood uh, one of the words, the idea is simply, uh, it's called shehol, which is not, um, it's not, it's not hell, but people, a place of the dead, or even Abraham's bosom, it's called. And so we know that those people who died in belief, in faith, like Abraham, before he did that, uh, before he, uh, when he died, before Christ, that he went into the presence of God. He went to a good place. It wasn't a bad place. But we also know that when Christ opened up the, the gates of heaven, if you would, that uh, he was brought into that when, uh, after Jesus atoned for sin. So we don't have a lot more information than that, except to know that they, people who died before Christ were in a good place, and now they're even in a better place. And as we will be someday, we'll all be restored perfectly. We'll get what's called a glorified body. And I always want to know what that looks like, right? And I know it's going to be like buff and strong, right? It's going to be really good looking and all that kind of stuff. But that's the promise. So uh, that's what we would say about the Old Testament saints, that they were, they were with God in some way that we can't quite understand. So next question. How can we trust the Bible when it's prepared by men thousands of years ago and its contents were selected by men? How do we know that they did not influence the process? I, it's a wonderful set of doubts that I think everybody has. When I say wonderful, it's really honest, isn't it? If you've ever picked up the Bible, you probably had that question, I guess. And so here's the challenge for us when we look at the Scripture. So we know that it's God-breathed, in other words, inspired. The writers, you know, there were over 40 of them. Over, you know, 4,000 years they wrote it, and, and uh, basically, I mean, I'm sorry, over 1,500 years they wrote it, and, and there, there's 66 books, and it all connects together, and it's like, really you expect me to believe that? And, and the answer really becomes apparent when you study from cover to cover and there, there's some major things that really help me wrestle with the reality of the authority of Scripture. The first is that God starts by saying this. He starts the Bible by simply saying what? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And so one of the things we know is there's a natural revelation that says that God created and that's why when you step outside, and Romans talks about this, you, you see this, this reality of creation. You go, this had to come from someplace. And you notice that God doesn't spend any time in the Bible saying where he came from. He just is. And so he claims that authority. Now, should you believe that since that was written by a man? Well, Remember that even over, with over 40 authors, it tells a coherent story over the span of the storyline of Scripture. You, you get this story that holds together. There's prophetical evidence. All these prophecies, over 500 prophecies in the Old Testament, point towards Christ. How could that happen? How could it happen if it wasn't designed or instructed or inspired by God? There's the, there's the person and work of Christ himself revealed only in the pages of Scripture, which is an amazing, wonderful, powerful thing because he has overcome the problem of sin and death. And we have that promise as we look at Scripture, we say, wait a minute, that is a miracle. And those miracles coupled with the prophetical evidence tell you there's something special about this book. 
There's also, by the way, you know, for books of antiquity, there's more manuscript evidence for the Bible than any other work of antiquity that we have. Over 5,000 manuscripts so that we know some people complain. They say, well, wait a minute, you know, it's been copied and recopied and, and so forth. But we even have the Dead Sea Scrolls, many of those uh, showing us texts from the Old Testament that show that we have an, a really a, a, a document that has integrity even after all these years. So when you put all that together, will it convince you that the Bible is true? The answer is no. Facts just on that level don't do it. It's the message of the Bible that does it. Because what does the Bible do? It gives you the answers to the biggest questions of life. It's questions that every one of us are answering. Where did I come from? Origins. Where did I come from? Um... Where, um, how should I live? It tells you. Uh, what's the purpose? What's my purpose as a human being? Everybody wants to know their purpose. They want their life purpose. Your purpose is to glorify your creator with your life. That's what scripture tells us. And it also tells us your destiny. It tells us our destiny. And our destiny is simply that we're going to go to be with him forever, that eternity is ours, or we won't if we don't believe you know, there's no other worldview, there's no other religious writings that coherently answer those questions as well as the Bible. But will that convince you? No. See, God wants to work faith in your life. And so you need to go to Scripture and you say, need to say, God, I truly want to know you. And so that's how you know the Bible's true. Because you go and you ask him and you pray and you seek and you read him. Because you want to seek not the pages of the Bible, you want to seek the author of the living word, Jesus Christ. And until you wrestle with the reality of your sin and the need for a savior, you won't do that. And so while this question is asked often, it's really not the question. Because the Bible is the only book in the world that can answer the question of what a sinner does in front of a holy God. Because every other world religion wants you to be better on your own. And this gift of Jesus is given fully and completely through Christ. But you have to come to the realization you got the problem to begin with. So that's how I think we can trust the Bible best, even though there's all that other stuff that helps us. So let's look at our next question. How do I know if I'm doing what God wants me to be doing? That's a great question as well. I appreciate that. Um, anybody ever struggle with like, okay, so what should I be doing? Because that could be like at a, on a daily basis, like which parking place should I pick, right? Or it could be a larger picture, like I want to live the will of God is the question. And so, it, and we know from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God has prepared for us in advance good works for us to do that we might walk in them. So the, the real key for this is not, you know, where, even where I'm going to live or where I'm going to park or whatever it might be. The real question is, how will I do the good works that he planned in advance for me to do? So how do you know? Well, you start by simply saying, God, here's my life. Romans 12.1 says it this way. I present myself as a living sacrifice, right? A living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means, Lord, here's my life. Take it and use it. However you would have me to, to, to use my life, I'm available. And, and then, it, then it, the, Romans 12, 2 says, look, then be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which means you're going to go to God's word and say, okay, God, show me from pages of Scripture what that looks like. So you submit yourself, and then you are transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then it also says not to be conformed to the ways of the world. So then you're going to say, okay, what does the world want me to do? What does God want me to do? I'm going to wrestle with all that. I'm going to give myself to God. And, uh, and then you're going to start. See, everybody wants this plan. This is the question behind the question is, Lord, if you tell me where you want me in 10 years, I'll start. That's the question. And God says, no. I want you to take a step. And, and that step today is to pray. Or that step today is to join and explore God group. Okay? Or that step today is to talk to your neighbor. And you take a step, one step at a time. 
and God shows up in that moment, you go, wow, that's amazing. And you take another step. And so that, that place that he wants you to go, that will that he wants to reveal to you will never be revealed all at once. You'll never know, oh yeah, I'm going to... If you'd have told me 25 years ago, 30 years ago that I was going to be a pastor, I would say, you are absolutely crazy. Wouldn't happen. But here I am today. So um, that's the kind of journey that we're all on to find God's will and to really understand what he wants you to do. So take a step, whatever that is. Ask God what the next one is and the strength to take it. So let's look at our next question. If homosexuality is sinful, then why are we born that way? Wow, is this a question of our age or what? Right? I mean, this, this, this question comes out of that pain of knowing people who are experiencing that kind of temptation. Um, it comes out of maybe even your, some struggles of people in the room. And so for, for the very the very first thing that I want to do before I answer that question is I want to talk a little bit about love. So let's go to slide 55. Because I don't think we can address this question without love. So we start here. And, uh, you know, God says to us to love. He says, love me and love your neighbor. And, and not, just a, not just a little bit, but, you know, all that love is with your heart and soul and your strength and your mind and your, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and then he reminds us that, well, to be able to love that way, we're going to have to understand that he loves us. We're going to have to have a source of that love. You see, that's a mistake so many people make when we deal with any difficult situation, person, problem, challenge of life, is that we think that we can somehow generate the kind of love that God wants. If you go on and talk about the kind of God's love, the kind of love that God wants, it's pretty exhaustive. You'll see this passage offered a lot of times at a, at a, at a wedding, and I tell couples all the time, you know, this is, this is your goal right here. Patient, kind, don't envy, boast, not arrogant, rude, uh, doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable, resentful, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth, okay? And so we're going to get to that in a minute when it comes to the question. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never, never ends. Okay, so now are you getting the answer to the question of how we are going to deal with this question, it's in love. I tell couples, you can't live like this. It's impossible. This is God's kind of love, but he wants you to experience it first, and if you have it, then you can really answer this question. But if you don't have this, you have to be careful about how you answer this question because what happens is we come off kind of, um, kind of judgmental on it. But I will tell you, and this is, this is the reason why it's, it's so hard to talk about, is I tell you what Scripture says about homosexuality. So let's look at um, slide number 23. Actually, I want to go to a different slide. There it is. Thank you. This is one of six places that Scripture, not Dan's opinion, Scripture addresses homosexuality. And so we can see here that uh, from, the, the, from, the, from the truth of God's Word, that homosexuality is not ideal for human beings. Jesus said when he talked about marriage, he talked about when a man leaves his mother and father to go to his wife, marriage is never defined any other way in Scripture. So what do we do with this question? It's, it's a very difficult response in today's world, especially since the heteronomous law that we have today says that it is something that we embrace and, and we believe should be true. But we have a conflict because God's Word says it's a sin. And the reason why people are born that way is the same reason why we're all born in sin. 
We all have the problem of sin. We're all born in sin, every one of us. All of us have proclivities to sin. It's just a challenge to even say what I just said in today's culture. And so that's what we have to wrestle with, though, and I want you guys to wrestle with it with us on that issue. Because how do we respond is the bigger question. It's like we have to know what the Bible says, but we have to know what the whole Bible says. There's this truth and love connection that forces us to say, how do we approach that issue? We do it in love. Does that make sense? But we recognize never that we can never, ever take a passage like this and say, well, you know, it's okay, because it's not okay. And I know that's unpopular. And I know some of you are going to want to write me an email after I say that. But that's the position that we find ourselves in when we face the truth of God's word. So thanks for the question, and thanks for listening for a few minutes about it as well. So there's more, I'm sure. I know that I, as I talk, you're having neurons flash off in your mind and saying, hey, I have more questions. So if you still have your card, if you still have that, uh, you can write any of those questions. You can put on that card. You can put um, your email, and we will answer every question. So if we didn't get to it, uh, be sure and, and uh, submit it, and uh, you can do that back at the booth on the way out or hand it to the ushers, and they'll get it to us. But uh, we thank you for your questions today. Would you pray with me?